apologize ahead of time. My allergies are really bad today. Uh, my ears are clogged. My nose is running. And so I'll try not to sniffle too much into the microphone for you today. So, <clears throat> But uh, glad that you guys are here with us. Welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Um, thank you for those who are joining us online. Um, we're glad that you're watching and attending. If you want to uh, make your comments in the um, comment section as you're watching, the guys who are monitoring the channel will answer you. If you have any prayer requests, you can put those up there as well, and we'll be praying for you. Um, as far as announcements this morning, there's a new Calvary Chapel magazine out. Uh, they'll be outside of the door on the table when you exit. If you want one, please take one. Um, uh, I want to just speak to a couple things about this. There's many articles in here in regards to the work that Calvary chapels across the United States are doing in Ukraine. Um, I shared uh, when this all began that there are nine Calvary Chapel church plants in Ukraine. Uh, one of the church plants is through the Calvary Chapel in Aurora, um, Pastor Ed Taylor. And we partnered with them early on to send almost $9,000 in donations. Thank you again for that. Uh, to the Ukrainian relief effort. And um, I know the initial report is we were able to get, I think it was 21 people, women and children, out and stationed in Germany and uh, provided housing for them. We'll pray for, provide for housing for 21 of them for uh, a six-month period of time and that the, the, the United States missionaries who planted that Calvary Chapel um, are going back and forth and still in that western part of Ukraine where that Calvary Chapel Church is and working still to get uh, men and women, or not men, pardon me, men have to stay behind and fight, but women and, and children out. So um, that, that there's still a lot going on, but in the magazine that what our church has done with um, Aurora isn't in this article. It's actually on their online, um, Calvary Chapel Magazine online, and you can read uh, about the family, uh, the, the couple that um, have been going from um, Aurora in and what they've been doing. But there's other good articles about what's going on. So please take one of the magazines and you can read about it too. Um, as far as announcements go, uh, we have had our men's prayer group on Tuesday mornings. It's been moved to Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. So if you wish to come and pray uh, with a bunch of with a group of men on uh, Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m., it lasts to about 7. We pray for the needs of one another the needs of our church, the needs of the community, and we pray corporately together. We would invite you men to come and join us on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. Also, starting June 5th, will be the first Sunday of June, 9.30 a.m., we will begin our outdoor services that we do through the summertime in our amphitheater over here behind us <coughs> and um, on front of you behind me um, on the other side of that door, those walls. <laughs> And uh, um, we're looking forward to that. We get to have uh, first and second services together. So mark your calendars, June 5th. Service times will be at 930. Um, we still have our Saturday services that will continue. We had our second Saturday service last Saturday. It went really well. Um, thank you again for those who come and volunteer and help out with that. If you have considered coming, please note that we do have child um, church, children church, and nursery, and and um, different age groups divided up for uh, children's church on Saturdays as well. So please come be a part of that. And the last announcement, we mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again. Mark your calendars, ladies. We're going to our women's ministry is putting on a women's retreat for September 16th through the 18th. So we'll get through the summer. And once you get your um, summer plans behind you, you can set your schedule up to come to the women's retreat September 16th through the 18th details to follow that. 
All right, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, continuing on. You can turn your Bibles to chapter 7. We will finish this chapter starting in verse 24 and go on through verse 37. Um, And as we pray this morning and pray for the other churches in our community, today on our list is the First United Methodist Church. They're down there on Main Street, I think Main and 7th or 8th, something like that. Um, It's one of those old, beautiful buildings downtown, those old big churches. And the minister there is Reverend David Blackwell. So we'll be praying for them this morning as we pray for our time together. So let's let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for the time of worship, Lord, where we can reflect on your goodness, your faithfulness, your love for us, Lord. The worship and the songs that are chosen, Lord, uh, are beautiful as they cause us to reflect on who you are and our relationship with you. And Lord, we need that encouragement in the world that we live in today. When this world is full of of darkness, when so many people are calling what you've called good evil, and and what you call evil, they're calling it good. Lord, I pray that we would not waver in our walk as we follow after you. Lord, that we would be a light to those around us in the community that we live in with our friends and our neighbors. And Lord, as we marvel at the good things that you've done for us and the things that you do in us, Lord, we pray, God, that those we come in contact, that we share you with, would also marvel as they come to know you as the one true and living God who loves them. Father, as we study your word today, I pray, God, that we would deepen our relationship with you. Lord, we would understand your ways and your will for our lives more. And Father, we pray these same things for the United Methodist Church and the congregation that gathers there today. And for Reverend David, Lord, that you would give him wisdom as he ministers to those who come. Lord, I pray for any new people who are there and any people who are, new people who are here, Lord, um, that are either visiting our church or their church for the first time, or Lord, who may not know you. I pray, God, that they would not leave without having encountered you, Lord, that they would know that Um, You have a place for them in your kingdom, and that you desire to have a relationship with them through your son Jesus. You desire to forgive sins and to restore to new life. And um, I pray that your word will be taught in truth here and also at the United Methodist Church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 24, we're going to read there in just a minute, but (coughs) this is one of these there's so much in this chapter, it, it's really too hard to do it all within a 45-minute period of time. So we did 45 minutes last week, and we'll do somewhere like that today. Um, but it's, it would be best if it would, could be taught together in one big bite instead of two. But because of that, I really want to reflect a little bit and look back on the first part of this chapter so we can see the contextual flow and 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 get the bigger picture for what we're being taught here. Because Mark's trying to communicate a very specific message by the things that he chose to put in the timeline of events and the, 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 the accounts that he's recording for us. And so as we read on through the rest of this chapter, we have to remember that we're picking back up after a confrontation that had just taken place between Jesus and the religious leaders. If you remember that, the scribes and the Pharisees had made that 50-mile journey from Jerusalem down to the Sea of Galilee. And at this time in Jesus' ministry, it's not the first time where the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, 
had confronted Jesus and his disciples. And as a matter of fact, there had been much interaction with them at this point, and typically it was these religious leaders that were around the Sea of Galilee. This is the first time where a delegation had been sent down from Jerusalem. Jesus had been in Jerusalem and had interactions with them that we read about in the other gospel accounts. But this time they were coming to him, and we know that they came already with a with already um, an idea in their mind of what they were looking for as they were assessing Jesus and his ministry. As a matter of fact, overall, the religious leaders at this point had expressed public opposition to Jesus. They were not friends, if you will, of one another. And so when they came, they were looking for fault, and they found some fault pretty immediately with Jesus and his disciples. And if you remember, the disciples were eating, and um, they were eating without going through the traditional washings that the, the um, elders had appointed for people to do. And so they found fault, and they questioned Jesus about the saying, why do your disciples eat without going through these traditional washings that the elders have called us to do? But in response to this, in response to this confrontation, really, we have to understand that it was brought on by the religious leaders, okay? Jesus wasn't looking for this. Um, Jesus won't turn away from a confrontation, and I, and I love that. But he always deals with people in grace and in truth, and that's what he was doing here as well. Because Jesus' response to them, in, in, in to begin with, is he accused them of hypocrisy. He was assessing the situation. He was assessing their motive. He was assessing the, 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 um, the traditions of the elders that they were then putting forth on people as heavy burdens and equating it to the same thing as the Mosaic law, the laws of God, and, and maybe in a lot of ways even elevating it above it. But he's, he points out how there was hypocrisy in their lives and how they only honored God with their lips. And he declared that their hearts were far from them. And we know that these religious leaders were really good about looking holy, looking righteous in all that they did, how they spoke, where they went, where they would not go, how they dressed, what they eat, what they would not eat, even to how they would, in this instance, wash their hands before they would eat in this very ceremonial way. Seven times they would raise their hands up in the air and water would be poured on it and it would drip off. And, and, and we know that these things were done as outward signs, but yet there was no inward state of holiness. And this is why Jesus spoke to him and said that there was hypocrisy in their life. They honored God with their lips, and yet their hearts were far from God. And Jesus went on to use this opportunity to expose some false teachings of these religious leaders. And in doing so, he explained how the keeping of these elders' traditions, one of such was just the washing of hands, just said many other things they did like this, right? But he was saying that these kinds of things, the washings of hands and many other things that they did, isn't what made a person pure. It didn't fix the problem. And Jesus said that the problem lies within our hearts, saying that our hearts are evil. And, and saying that it's not, hear this, it's important as we go forward. It's important that to understand that Jesus said it's not that what goes into a man that corrupts him, it's what comes out of a man. And when we look at the heart as the root of, of what Jesus is speaking about, we know that Jesus gave this list of what comes out of the heart, saying that all evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, Murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, pride, and foolishness. He says these things come from within, and they are what corrupt us. Consequently, as we look at the, the times of what Jesus was living in and to, he, to whom he was speaking, what we know is that this was a very different 
way of thinking for the Hebrew people. And maybe even not so far removed from a lot of religious people today that are really focused on the outward behavior and, not, and, and, and where hearts are still far away from God in many ways. But nevertheless, it was a different way of thinking for the Hebrew people because they had come to believe that it was their separation from the unclean things such as Gentiles and foods that they would not eat that made them holy. And the fact that Jesus had pointed to their hearts as the root of the corruption meant two things. This is where it gets real personal. The first is, is that it meant that they were in need of a new heart, right? If there's a heart issue, if my heart is not right, then something needs to be done with my heart. My hands don't need to be washed. The inner part of me needs to be dealt with. And Jesus was saying they were in need of a new heart, a clean heart. And we know that there was prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah, both in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Joel, and the book of Ezekiel, where they were told that when the Messiah come, that he would give them a new heart and that God would put his spirit in them. So they would walk in his ways and keep his commands. And, 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 and Jesus was referring to these things as he was speaking about the heart and a need for a new heart, a clean heart. And, and Jesus would give all who came to him in faith and still does today a new heart. We become a new creation, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus through our faith in him where all the old things pass away and all things for us become new. Secondly, what we see this meant is that Ultimately, as we look forward and connect the line that Mark is drawing for us to the second passage of Scripture here at the end of this chapter, is, is, is it meant that if, if the heart was corrupt and it wasn't about doing these religious things, that the problem was in the heart, not just in the behavior. And what it meant as Jesus was speaking to these religious people is it meant that ultimately that there was no difference between them, the Jews, and the Gentiles, these unholy pagan people. In other words, there were, they were just as unclean as the Gentiles, and that meant that they were equally in need of Jesus to save them. And so to further illustrate this and to tear down these walls of separation between the Jews and Gentiles that existed at this time, Jesus, by way of example, as Mark accounts it for us, he did the culturally unthinkable thing, right? Jesus being a holy man, a, a rabbi, a, a teacher, one who had disciples. He did the culturally unthinkable thing, and he took his disciples into the land of the Gentiles, and while he was there, he did three miraculous things. This was so much more radical than not washing your hands before you ate in these ceremonial ways. It's almost like Jesus, as Mark accounts it for us, he's like, oh yeah, watch and see what I do next. You think this is radical. I love that Jesus was radical. Again, he was full of grace and full of truth, but he, he stood against these, these cultural norms that were, that were unacceptable to God. And so in verse 24, we read about this as Mark connects these dots, and he says, For there, from there, he, Jesus, from Bethsaida, where they were at, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Why? Because there was a woman, is what we're told in verse 25. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him, now notice the language there, there's this repetitiveness to her asking that's being spoken here. She was persistent. She kept asking him, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And when we read the other accounts, 
about this is what we see is that Jesus just was silent. She kept asking, she kept asking, Jesus was silent. Uh, We'll read about this, I want to get too far ahead, but even Jesus' disciples will become irritated with her persistence and and ask Jesus to do something about it. But in verse 27, Mark giving us just minimal details said in verse 27 that Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Now, just in these short verses, there are many things taking place in the, this account. And, and again, as is the case with all of Mark's writings, he's only giving us the details that are necessary to make his point. He doesn't want us to be distracted by the, the he would make deem as the peripheral of the account that the other gospel writers make mention of. And, and Mark's just, just the facts, just the points, because he's trying to communicate a singular message all the way through. And he's using this event to communicate the same message, the same main point. And we don't want to miss that as we look at these details that he gives us. And the main point to be follow, to, to, for us to follow, or the main point to be seen as we follow the context of Mark's writing throughout this whole gospel in this chapter is that Jesus is the saving servant of God, right? We're still being communicated that message. That's what Mark wants us to know. Jesus, the Son of God, came to serve. He's the saving servant of God. But in this context around these events, what he's telling us is that Jesus, the saving servant of God, who came for the Jews, also came for the Gentiles, for you and I. In other words, the God of the Jews, the Hebrew people who had a covenant relationship could also be God to the Gentiles, which at this time for the religious Jew was an unimaginable thought. And I would challenge us this morning in light of that. Are there people in our own lives where we go, certainly God could not save them. We think about what they've done. We know them. We know what they've done. Maybe it's someone we know personally Someone in our family, someone we work with. Maybe it's somebody in our community that we know of. Can you think of anybody? Don't do it. No. You're like, oh, yeah, let me give you the list, Pastor. There's not, you, you don't know these people. And, and we deem them as unclean, out of the reach of God. How about someone in the world? How about even Vladimir Putin? How about... Other people in, in politics, is, is there hope for them, some of them? And we giggle and we laugh because there's some truth to it in our hearts where we look at them and we doubt. And, and maybe we don't doubt God, maybe we doubt them, but the thing about it is, is, is salvation, God saved us in spite of ourselves. And God can do the same for these people in our days who we might, as a religious Jew, would look at the Gentiles that we might be looking at uh, other people and going, that's an an unimaginable, an unimaginable thing to think that God could really do that. And maybe maybe we think that, that God could, but we go, would God? Would God do that? 
So the first thing that we're told is that Jesus departed here, as we read the text, right, from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And this was a Gentile region. I want you to know from where Jesus was at, and I don't know if you guys know the geography of the area very well. If you, if you don't, there's a map usually in the back of your Bible. But Tyre and Sidon is about 50 miles away northwest from the Sea of Galilee. And I point that out to you because not only was it a long journey for Jesus to make, but we know that Jesus operated on a divine schedule. There was a plan that had been given to him by God, and the Holy Spirit drove Jesus and led Jesus to where he went. Jesus had divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. Jesus just didn't accidentally end up in the, the land of the Gentiles. He made a 50-mile journey intentionally with his disciples to have this meeting with this woman that we read about here and others that aren't documented in the scriptures that are maybe in other accounts but that just haven't been accounted to us. And, and so it was, it was on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, 50 miles. It was on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and these cities where they are at today is where they were located then. It's in Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon. And before we begin to look into the details of this event, it's worth pointing out that at the beginning of this chapter, right, Jesus confronted the Pharisees about their traditions. And in doing so, we got to think about what was going on. And in doing so, he was wiping out this distinction between clean foods and unclean foods in regards to the holy state that we think that these actions might bring or these Jews might bring from that and and they were things that were brought forth in the law right god had said clearly to the hebrew people you know eat this and don't eat that and and we know that even after the resurrection when peter had been filled with the holy spirit and some time had even passed from the day of pentecost that peter was going to be sent to the home of a gentile a man by the name of cornelius and that before that in preparation god gave Peter a vision, you know, where the, 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 the sheet came down, and within the sheet were all these unclean animals. And God said to Peter, he said, Peter, have a barbecue. Maybe my interpretation, something like that. And Peter's all, not so, Lord, not so. Not going to let anything unclean come into me. I'm clean is what he was saying. I want to be defiled by these things. And, and even Peter, in his way of thinking, this Jewish man, and having spent three years with Christ, and hear Jesus speak about all these things, he still struggled with this Jewish way of thinking, with these religious actions. But Jesus was tearing down these things. He was wiping out the distinctions between clean and unclean foods when he said in verse 15 at the beginning of this chapter, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of the man that defiles them. In light of this, now think about that, in light of this and in light of what Mark now writes about, as we look at Jesus' interaction with these Gentiles that the Hebrew people deemed as unclean, we should see that there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles. Why? Because for all are sinners and all are in need, in need of a Savior. Because just like a Jew would never defile his lips with unclean food, at this time they would never defile themselves with contact of an unclean Gentile. And Jesus was going, that's not going to happen. It needs to change. And with that being said, we see Mark introduce us to this Gentile woman as Jesus enters into this Gentile territory. And he tells us about her desire to have her daughter healed from this demon possession. And Mark illustrates this point further that I'm trying to make to you, or that's being made here 
saying that, that the point that Jesus also came for the Gentile by pointing out the fact that she was Syrian, who was born of, of Phoenicia, uh, who was born in Phoenicia. And, and when we get to Matthew's account, we'll even see that Matthew deems it that she was a Canaanite. This was, um, and, and the Canaanites were the enemies of the Israeli people, the Israelites. Now, I do want to point out that the Mosaic Law did separate Jews from the Gentiles. God said that he had called his people out. He called Abraham initially, the father of the Hebrew people, right? Out from the land of the Chaldeans. Called him to be separate. And so that picture was brought forth and he called his people, the Hebrew people, to not intermarry, to not intermix, if you will, with the Gentile people, to be separate and set apart unto him. And, and all throughout the law, you read this kind of message being described to God's people. But listen, God did not call the Jewish people out from the Gentiles because the Jews were better. It wasn't like God looked and he said, oh my gosh, I found the cream of the crop. You're mine, you're so much better than everybody else. Come unto me. Leave those filthy people behind. As a matter of fact, when you read the, the history of the, the Hebrew people, you go, why did God choose them? I mean, even Moses at one point, got, he's all like, God, you sure? Don't you just kill them all and we'll start all over. You know, and, and, and we, we laugh and giggle, but we think, you know, when we think about ourselves, do we think that God chose the cream of the crop when he picked us? Like, yeah, God, you really got a deal when you got me, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, we can have this wrong thinking and, and, and he didn't choose them because they were better than, than the rest of the people. And he, he didn't have them enter into this covenant relationship because he saw a promising future, knowing that it would be, you know, they would always live for him and never forsake him. And that was quite the opposite. But, but he chose them to be different. He chose them to enter a covenant relationship with him to illustrate that, um, well, and to illustrate to illustrate how God had done this, what we know is that, even in the temple, there was a separation that was made. There was a separation between Jew and Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile were both allowed to come into the very presence of God here on earth, but there was a distinction that was made. A difference was the covenant relationship. And it wasn't because the Jews were better. It's because God had a plan for his people. And, and we know that it was such a big thing that even a Jew, a Gentile who would convert or would come to faith in the the God of Israel, that they were still to remain separated from this other Jewish court within the temple area. And as the true, as the one true and living God, the creator of, of the heavens and earth, chose to reveal himself to Abraham and his descendants, is what we see is that ultimately he did this because he wanted these descendants, these Hebrew people, he had called them out and set them apart so that they might be a witness for him to the rest of the world to be a witness and so he called them to be different he called them to live differently and and we know that God's done the same thing for us has he not he's called us out to live differently to be separate to be different why so that we might be a light to those around us about this relationship that we now have with the true and living God, that we might be an example. And so God separated the Hebrew people from the Gentiles, and consequently, 
Sadly, over time, they became filled with pride. They became filled with righteousness. Right? We do this, and we don't do that. And you do this, and you do that. And sadly, it was this elitist mentality that caused the Jews to despise the Gentile people whom God also loves. But the cool thing is that Jesus was beginning to at this moment and would ultimately and completely break down this wall of separation by making believing Gentiles and believing Jews all one in him. No distinction, no separation. One in Christ Jesus in this new covenant that we've been partakers of, become partakers of. And Paul writing to the Ephesians about this, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read seven verses, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Paul accounts this in detail, and he says, You Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcised by the Jews who call themselves circumcised. Remember, remember what you were in the past. He said, at that time you were apart from Christ. You were foreigners and you did not belong to God's chosen people. You had no part in the covenants. That's a key word to the context of what we're reading here. And it'll help us understand a little bit what Jesus is doing with this woman in her interaction with her. But he says, you had no part in the covenants which were based on God's promises to his people. And you lived in this world without hope and without God. But now... In your union with Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. With, and this is how precious that is, it says, with his own body, he broke down the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. He abolished the Jewish law with its commandments and its rules in order to create out of the two one people in union with himself. And in this way making peace by his death on the cross, Christ destroyed their enmity. By means of the cross, he united both into one body and brought them back to God. So Christ, Christ came and he preached the good news of peace to all, to you Gentiles, who are far away from God, and to the Jews who were near him. And what we read about here is that Jesus going to these Gentile lands and preaching the gospel message, the good message to them. And, and, and Paul ends in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, with this thought, and he says, It is through Christ that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are able to come in the one spirit and into the presence of God. The point is this. The point is that Jesus came to be the Savior of everyone, whosoever will believe in him. And that message rings true today. It does not matter who you are, what you've done, or even where you were born, because through Christ, all can become a citizen of God's kingdom when they come to Jesus in faith. And this is something that we can't lose sight of. Please hear this today. This is... this. This is something we can't lose sight of because this same elitist in the same condemning spirit can be in us. And it can be found in Christian churches when pride and self-righteousness is allowed to creep into our lives and then we, sadly, then we who have taken the holy and precious name of Jesus who have been called to be in the world. Do you hear this? We're called to be in the world, not of it. It doesn't say to be to be away from it. We're called to be in it, just not of it. And we who have been called to be in the world and not of it 
with our pride and self-righteousness, with our elitist attitude, we can look down and we can begin to despise and act in loving ways to those who have yet not come to Christ. And may it not be so among us. Now, as we consider Jesus' interaction with this woman, yeah, we're going to get to that now. When we consider Jesus' interaction with this woman, I don't know about you, but on, I'm like, what's going on here? Because we know what Jesus is like, right? And in our, on a, unlike this first reading, it appears that, that maybe, maybe Jesus is just having a bad day. You know, maybe he's like irritated with this woman, but it doesn't make sense. We, we, we know this is not what Jesus is like. He didn't like go out of the land of Israel so he could get away from all the Hebrew people and just have a break. I already explained that. There's a sovereign hand of God working here and the Holy Spirit driving Jesus into these God-appointed meetings and Christ entering into them willingly. However, we should consider that Mark's account, like I said earlier, we're getting just some limited details here. Mark's only given us what's necessary for the overall point that he's trying to make. And so we have limited details surrounding this account. And yet, when we come to the other Gospels, specifically Matthew chapter 15, I think things become a little more clear to us. And I think it's worth trying to understand today what's going on. So in order to try to figure out what's going on and why Jesus is responding the way that he does, let's go to Matthew's account and get a little bit more of the details. And in Matthew chapter 15, picking up in verse 21, we begin to read this account. And it says, Then Jesus went out from there, verse 21, and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed, but he answered her not a word. And we know from what we read in Mark's Gospel account as we put the two together, there's this persistence that's taking place here. She's talking and she's speaking and Jesus is silent. So we're here, we're told that at first Jesus was silenced to this woman's request. But when we look at the, the, what Matthew tells here, we get the answer. We see that it's not because she was a Gentile, but because she, being a Gentile, had come to Jesus and was using Jewish terminology when she was asking for mercy by calling Jesus the son of David. It, 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 it might be better to understand that she was, she was using religious sayings and she, was, she wasn't a Jew. She was not a Hebrew person. And it's not that, she was, that it was wrong to call Jesus the son of David because that's exactly what Jesus is. It's who he was. It's who he is. But there is great implications behind this title. And, and because she was a Gentile, when we understand the covenant relationship that God had to the Hebrew people, and her at this point being outside of that covenant relationship, is what we, we know is she had absolutely no right to come to Jesus and call him the son of David with the intention of getting Jesus to do something for her. And when we consider the whole of this account, it's clear that she had come to Jesus and called upon him as the son of David because this. She thought, she believed that she could get Jesus to do what she wanted if she just said the right thing. Have you ever done that with God? I think we do. You see, 
what she said might have been something that a Jew would say, and perhaps she even heard a Jew say these very things to Jesus. But this is not something that a pagan, a, an unbelieving Gentile woman would have said. So in reality, what, it sees, what we see here is Jesus was silent because she was trying to manipulate Jesus by, by saying all the right things, and Jesus would not be manipulated by her. And, and so she, ignored, she was ignored. She, he, he, he was silent. And, and it, it wasn't to dismiss her, but here's the reason why. His silence was given in order to call her to the place of sincerity. What Jesus was saying is he was saying, he says, don't come to me through all these religious ways that you think that you have to come. Just simply come to me with your need. In sincerity. Not in hypocrisy. Not because he was being mean, but because he was leading her to come in a genuineness of faith, by her own faith. And here's the thing, guys. Jesus expects us to do the same. The bottom line is, is there are, there's no formulas that we can put together in order to get God to do what we want. And yet, sometimes we think that's the case. God's never moved to answer our request simply because we say all the right things. However, this type of doctrine is the basis for a modern movement called the Word of Faith teaching. Because those who believe in a Word of Faith, or it's often referred to as the name and claim it, or as I fondly refer to it as the blab it and grab it, they wrongly believe that if you say all the right things, then God's going to have to do it, right? If you just say this in the right way and just have this kind of faith, then God's going to do it. On the same note, listen, God's... God, neither is God moved by us doing all the right things. How sad would that be if, if God only moved on our behalf if we said and did the right things? As much as we would like to think that we were saying the things and doing the right things, we would be without hope. But we can think that. We can think that if we say the right thing or do the right thing, then God's going to interact on our part. In other words, if we think that God will answer our request because we go to church or because we regularly read our Bibles or because we've been good, then what we're really thinking is that God now owes us something. I've done this, therefore, God, you must do that. But again, these things are not more, these things are nothing more than an attempt for us to try to create some kind of formula to get God to do what we want. And you know what they are? They're just manipulations. And that was at the heart of this initial encounter with this one Gentile woman, this Canaanite, this Syrophoenician. And so we, like this woman, can wrongly think that if we come to God and just do the right things and say the right things or have everything squared up in our lives before God or answer us, then we're missing something important. It's not just that the act itself is something that we need to steer away from because it's a manipulation against God. We need to steer away from it because it robs us of what God really wants us to enter into, and that's a genuine and personal relationship with Him. And we're missing that out when we're in this way. We're missing that genuine and personal relationship with God, and because of this, God's probably not going to answer us a single word when we're not just coming to Him as a son or a daughter to a father who loves us and says, come to me, come to me. And the fact of the matter is, is that prayer, listen, our request, you probably know this, but let's hear it again today. Our request to God is, is never, it's not us overcoming the reluctance of God. That's not, what, that's not what's taking place here. 
Jesus wasn't reluctant. He was there because he was willing. He's died on the cross for you and I. He's not reluctant to intercede and act on our behalf. And prayer is not us overcoming the perceived reluctance of God. It's us. Prayer is us taking hold of His willingness. Taking hold of His willingness by faith through prayer. And Jesus wanted this woman by her faith in a real relationship to take hold of His willingness. And we see this developed in the rest of Matthew's account where we get to further details starting in verse 23, chapter 15, where it says this. And his disciples came, Jesus was being silent, and it says his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she cries after us. And so you get the picture, right? I love these guys because we're a little bit like them. I think, what are you guys doing? But Jesus is silent, they're there, and she's coming to them going, get him to do something for me. But he answered and said to his disciples, who said, just send her away. Does that sound familiar? Didn't we just read about that a couple chapters ago? When, when the, the, the crowds were following Jesus, it was late in the day, and Jesus had called them away to rest, and they got in the boat, and the crowds followed them. And it was late in the day as Jesus was moved with compassion and ministering to them. And they came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, it's getting late. Send them away so they can go and get food. And here's what Jesus said to them. I was not sent except or only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not going to send her away. Jesus had a plan for her. He, he wanted to interact with her. He had come to call her to faith. And it says, then she came and worshipped him. There's a change. She came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. What a wonderful prayer. Lord, help me. And she said, yes, and she said, and she said, or Jesus answered her and said, it is not good to take the, the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. In other words, Lord, whatever you're willing to give, I'm willing to receive. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as your desire and her daughter was healed from that very hour. And without a doubt, this woman, this woman had all the right reasons from coming to Jesus. She did. As she asked for mercy for the healing of her demon-possessed daughter, and what Mark doesn't tell you, Matthew even describes a little bit further. Think about just where this woman was at and her daughter. Matthew says she's severely demon-possessed. I, you know, I think being any kind of demon-possessed would be bad. But severely, I mean, we don't see that language in that kind of context very often, but severely demon-possessed. And she was coming with this heart for her daughter. And she had many obstacles to overcome, right, when we look at the whole of the story. She was a Gentile. She understood the cultural boundaries. Matthew even points out a Canaanite, right? People who were enemies of the Jew. She was a woman, which would have never been an, an additional cultural barrier. And, and lastly, she even had the disciples of Jesus as an obstacle as they, in response to Jesus' initial silence, basically said to this woman, go away. 
They asked to send her away because she was a bother to them. And none of these things deterred this woman. None of these things deterred this woman. And, and when she finally came, but hear this, when she finally came in her own faith as she worshipped Jesus, which is the Greek word here in Matthew, pros, proskuneo, which means to fall to the knees. And Mark kind of describes that for us here, that she fell to her knees and she kissed the hand of Jesus, prokuneo, proskuneo, and, and, and when she did this, her words were then simple, not just this religious, oh, son of David, you know, this religious language. She simply said this, Lord, please help. You ever prayed that prayer? Please help me. This word for the Lord, this word Lord that she used, most of the time in, in Scripture it's the word Adonai. It's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word kurios. And it refers to, an, it refers to, it's, it's the word, it's, it's she's saying, when she used this word, she's saying, you're the owner. She was referring to herself, to her situation. The owner, one who has control of the person, the master. And in this statement, in this one word, this woman stopped from her manipulations and was ultimately submitting herself to the will of Jesus, even the crumbs, whatever it is. And in doing so, by faith, she laid hold of Jesus' willingness to help her. His will be done at that point and not her own. And what we see is, is that in doing so, in exercising this faith, it says that Jesus marveled. Great is your faith. And only twice in all the gospel accounts are we told that Jesus marveled at great faith. In both instances, it was over the faith of a Gentile. Nikki and Pete, if you come up, we're going to end with this. We're not going to get to the final verses of this chapter. I don't want to just rush through it. I want you to read it. I want you to take the foundation that's for what's been set. I want you to see Jesus heal this other person in this, this instance, a man who was deaf, a man who was mute. And in, in the meantime, remember that he can see even though he can't hear and he can't talk. And his friends bring him to him. You know, he's in the, 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 city of, the cities of Decapolis, the region of Decapolis. That is um, Jordan and Syria today. Again, a, a, a Gentile land that Jesus went to that Mark accounts to, to spread this message that Jesus came for all to whoever would believe in him. Read that account and read the response of the people. Go to Matthew's account and do some cross-referencing and dig into it. But as we close this out this morning, we see this, that Jesus marveled at great faith. And, and both times, it was only twice in Scripture, in all of Scripture, and both times it was the faith of a Gentile where Jesus said, great is your faith, and he marveled, he was astounded. And in this account, um, it was the great faith of a Gentile woman, but her great faith was not evident because she overcame obstacles. Last time, lots of times we think that. We look at people who overcome hardship and overcome obstacles, and they stay, they stay near to God or, or this and that, and they're not deterred. And, and truly, that is a sign of faith, and it's commendable, and we should be like that. But listen, the evidence of her great faith was this. And this is, this is great faith, is that she willing, willingly submitted herself to Jesus as her Lord. If I was to say by a show of hands today, then you don't have to, is Jesus your Savior? 
you guys would raise your hands. I hope all of you. And if, if you didn't know for sure that you would take that step of faith today and you would go, I want him to be my savior. But I would challenge you with a second question in light of that today and say, is he your Lord? Are you his possession? Is he your master? That, that's great faith. Willingly submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord. And she, in great faith that was commended, willingly submitted herself to the Lord, to Jesus as her Lord, the, the kurios, and Jesus being her master, even though she did not know if her situation would work out the way that she wanted it to. She didn't know. Whatever you're willing to give, is what she was saying, I'm willing to receive. And we all have different situations in our life that we're facing right now. And we have an idea of how we would want that to work out. Whether it's for ourselves, for our loved ones, maybe our work, maybe it's for our community, maybe it's for the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. And yet, can we get to this place in our lives where we're exercising great faith and we go, God, I would like it to work out like this, but however you work it out for me or the world that I'm living in, I trust in you that it's your will and your will and your plans for me are good. And that letting go is, is hard, it's difficult because there's this idea or this thinking that it may not work out the way that we would want it to work out. But yet today, as we look at this message and see that we're all one in Christ, it, it is ultimately under the banner of this submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that we too would have this kind of great faith. That we would look at this work that you did in this woman and through this woman, and Lord, that we would set aside prideful religiosity in our lives. And Lord, that we would just come to you in sincerity of relationship, Lord, where we are as the creature submitted to you as the creator, as the Lord, knowing, Father, that you've loved us so much that you've given your life for us and brought us into this new covenant relationship, not a covenant based upon rules and regulations, Lord, but one that is established in the work that you've done on the cross on our behalf through the spilling of your blood and the brokenness of your body. And Lord, with that truth in our mind, knowing that you've done such good and wonderful things for us on the cross, that you would all the more do what is good and wonderful for us today. Lord, give us that kind of faith to let go of our plans and of our will and of our ideas for our lives and to trust you with our today and our tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you stand?